0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestofleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the David Pakman Show, the Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, Counterspend, The Majority Report, The Media Matters Minute, and Moyers and Company. And a note that you can stop worrying because this episode does not contain any instances of the use of the nickname, The Gipper. Well, well, except for that one right there
1: there's an article in Alternet, which i encourage you to read right now it's called five ugly extremes of inequality in america the contrasts will drop your chin to the floor so there we talked a couple of weeks ago about a study maybe it was a couple of months now louis a study that asked people a couple of questions question number one was how do you think income is distributed amongst the, the amongst quintiles right the top twenty percent the second twenty percent the middle twenty percent fourth and bottom twenty percent in the u.s. how do you think income is distributed please kind of draw lines how you would do it question number two how do you think income should be distributed right in other words what would be fair to you and then it was another set of lines and then they should they they compared that to the reality of how income is distributed in the united states and it turned out that number one people had an idea very incorrect drastically wrong uh they th- m- uh, overall people think that income is much more equally distributed in this country and when you ask them how it should be distributed it's even further from the reality of how income is distributed we now have a this this really great article in alternate actually shows it really paints the picture of how unequal our society is economically so each of the Koch brothers saw their investments grow by 6 billion dollars in one year this is basically 3 million dollars an hour. 3 million dollars an hour based on a 40 hour work week, okay? Now, we have people in this country who earn $2.13 per hour. Now they may they're earning tips on top of that, understandably, but they are they're legally earning a wage that is $2.13 or even if we just compare it to the actual minimum wage of 7.25 and then we forget about the Koch brothers right we just say let's look at CEOs right look at the CEOs of large corporations five thousand dollars an hour versus 725 an hour now I understand different people do different jobs the owners of businesses certainly have created that entire structure and they deserve to make more And in many cases we could say a lot more but can we really say a thousand times more or eight hundred and fifty times more in other words is that really fair to make eight hundred and fifty times more uh... there may be situations where we could argue that it is but when we look at such broad numbers uh... uh, and again five thousand dollars an hour versus seven twenty five an hour is raising the minimum wage to nine bucks an hour
0: really gonna be that that crazy Lewis? well there are two options right either you uh... you raise the minimum wage or you use a lot of that the government uses a lot of that money that the the elites are making and using that money give more um, services and help to the people making two thirteen an hour
1: here's another comparison a single top income from a super rich person could buy housing for every homeless person in the u s for one year okay so on a winter day in twenty twelve just months ago about 633,000 people were homeless in the U.S. Based on an annual single room occupancy cost of $558 a month, right? If you look at across the country, not to rent a one bedroom apartment, but single room, renting a room average in the U.S., $558 a month, any one of the 10 richest Americans would have enough with their 2012 income to pay for a room for every single homeless person in the U.S. for an entire year. The top ten richest individuals made more than the entire housing budget of the United States. I'm not talking about their savings or net worth. I'm just talking about with the 2012 income of one of the top uh, ten richest people, they could basically say, everybody who's homeless, here's a a room for an entire year. Shocking. It is shocking, isn't it? Uh, okay, the poorest 47% of Americans have no wealth, uh, just no wealth at all, right? So you have 53% of Americans that have some kind of net worth, okay? And 47% of Americans have none, right? In 1983, the poorest 47% of America had about $15,000 per family, which was about 2.5% of the nation's wealth. Still not very much, right? 47% has 2.5% of the wealth. Right. In 2009, the poorest forty seven percent of america owned zero percent of the nation's wealth in other words their debt exceeded their assets this is actually negative wealth it's not zero you owe money you have to come up with money just to get back to even forty seven percent of this country louis it's incredible it is it's um. it's it's a sad state of affairs and then the other thing i want to touch on is for people who say well there's inequality in in all over the world that's true there is inequality all over the world But the U.S. is almost the most wealth unequal country in the entire world. Out of 141 countries, the U.S. has the fourth highest degree of wealth inequality in the world. What countries are ahead of us in wealth inequality? Russia, Ukraine, and Lebanon. And then the last comparison I want to make here is a can of soup to a mansion or a yacht. For a businessman. What does that mean? Literally, for every dollar of assets that a single black or Hispanic woman has, a member of the Forbes 400 has $40 million. Now, that doesn't mean that they have $40 million total. That just means that for every dollar of assets that a single black or Hispanic woman has, the Forbes 400 member has $40 million. As I said, Lewis. Wealth inequality is significantly more drastic than most people most people even understand, and I think step one is informing people, right, guys, because the wealthiest don't want people to know that the situation is this unequal, and as we saw from the polling, m- most people simply don't know that. And this
0: this was the whole point of the Occupy movement, right, or right. one of the major points of the Occupy movement, and unfortunately, I don't think it worked as I predicted. Um, and if you look at countries that do tax the rich. Uh, what here would be considered exorbitantly Sure. they don't have the poverty problems they don't have the inequality problems they don't have
1: the unhappiness problems right and actually this is interesting because natan i just saw an interesting interview that richard wolf my former professor and guest on this show did where he says bill o'reilly's talks of nanny states when he points to Countries like on the Iberian Peninsula of Europe, et cetera, and points to the problems they have. They're not really fair comparisons. We really need to be comparing the Scandinavian countries and countries like Germany. Those would be closer to real nanny states that provide more social services. And those countries actually are doing very well. So the comparisons some people like to make aren't even accurate. That's exactly right. I think there are two main things where in international rankings, the U.S. is comparable to uh, third-world countries one is income inequality and wealth inequality and the second one is gun deaths per 100,000 people and, and also one more which cases, is if we look at a map of the death penalty you should see who's in uh, up there with the United States right but that I mean that's one specific thing but what I'm saying is this is something that affects everyone yeah and in both cases you have incredibly special interested groups Who are controlling the discussion. And in the case of wealth inequality, anyone who starts talking about this issue is smeared as a socialist. Absolutely. And this is a political problem that we have.
2: Business Insider has a great piece. This was published back in June of last year. Henry Blodgett, B-L-O-D-G-E-T, on June 12, 2012. It's titled, The Most Important Story in America Family Net Worth Collapses 40% in Three Years. And it is the most important story in America. And, you know, he goes through all the different graphs and charts, which I can't show you on the radio, so, uh, but, but net, net, Corporate profits are at an all-time high. The wealth of the top 1% is at an all-time high. Wages for working people is at an all-time low. Family income has just barely kept up, but that means two people working instead of one before Reaganomics. CEO pay has exploded. Average hourly earnings adjusted for inflation. You go back to 1964 to 2008, they reached a peak in the last year of the Johnson administration, 1972. No, that would have been the last year of the first Nixon administration, of $20. It's average hourly earnings. Right now, $18.52. Actually, that was 2008. It's lower than that now. I'm surprised, frankly, it's that high. Oh, well, that's that's because it's average. That that includes people making piles of money. Meanwhile, CEOs and shareholders have been cashing in. Wages as a percentage of the economy have dropped to an all-time low, from 0.53% in 1970 to 0.44% now. The top 1% share of pre-tax income has, was... Just before the crash, nineteen twenty eight, it was at twenty five percent. And then in the seventies, you know, before Reaganomics it was down around eight point nine percent. Guess where it is now? This is the top one percent. All the all the money made in America, the, the part that they get, the top one percent. It was at eight percent before Reagan came into office. Now it's at twenty three and a half percent. You wonder where your paycheck's gone? You wonder where your standard of living is gone? Talk to somebody who's making a half million, a million, two million, five million. Talk to the talk to the, the you know the over a hundred executives at United Healthcare making a million dollars a year, or the CEO making who has made a billion. And then you look at the United States and other countries, and you see that our our uh, the top one tenth of one percent uh, share of income, it's off the it's off the chart. We beat Japan, the UK, France, can't we beat everybody? And by the way, it wasn't always this way. If you look at the era from 1917, you know, more or less the end of World War One, until 1981, the begin, you know, the year that Ronald Reagan was sworn into office. At the bottom, 90 percent of wage earners. So basically, you know, three, four generations of Americans, three, a good solid three generations, 1920 to 1980. Yeah, that's three generations. 60 years. It's actually a 63 year period, but 60 years. Three generations. The bottom 90% of wage earners, the the vast majority of wage earners, 90% of all wage earners made 69% of all wages. Right? So 90% of us made two thirds of all the money in the country. That sounds not unreasonable. Included, you know, because included in that bottom ninety percent is the top, is the bottom, you know, ten percent, twenty percent, people who are making very, very little. And I'm not saying it should be that way, but it is. And the top ten percent got thirty-one percent of the wages. Right, sixty-nine plus thirty-one is a hundred. So, from 1917 till 1981, then you take 1981 to now. Reaganomics, how has Reaganomics worked out? Keep in mind, bottom 90% of us used to make 69% of all income in the United States. Now, the bottom 9% of us make 4% of all income in the United States. Excuse me, these are income gains. Let me include the word gains. So as, as income goes up, so from 1917 to 1981, all increases in income, all income gains, 69% of all income gains went to the bottom 90%, to the to, to 90% of us. Now 90% of us get 4% of the income gains. The top 10% get 96% of the income gains. And, by the way, in the last couple of years, all of the wage gains have gone to the top 1%, and the bottom 99% have actually seen their wages slide. Wage gains have become negative. Net worth has become negative. In fact, just consider income inequality. This is from the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. They compile this—the CIA Fact Book. You can look this stuff up. Again, this is over at Blodgett's blog on Business Insider. Here's the United States, countries that have a better income inequality than we do. In other words, there's fewer rich and fewer poor, more middle class. Iran. Russia, China, Israel, Japan. Now, these are 2010 figures. This is the last year that the CIA had them. Israel, Japan, India, Egypt. And then you get the more equal countries the United Kingdom, Switzerland, France. And as we go through this list, it's getting better and better and better in terms of income inequality. France, Canada, Italy, Australia, Denmark, Germany, Austria, Norway, and Sweden with the lowest income inequality in the world. And who doesn't love school? Well, of course, the conservatives don't. <laughs> oh man! So what do we do about it? Well, like I said, roll back Reaganomics. We've this is a thirty-year. What you're looking at here is a thirty-year, thirty-two-year experiment. You know, we had, we tried this in the '20s. We tried it again.
0: to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support.
3: Scary chart time. Now, sometimes it's about the climate, sometimes it's about the upcoming financial meltdown. In this case, it is about money, but it's about what's really happening to our democracy more than anything else, because these numbers are staggering. Dunning! David K. Johnson, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer on this, uh, did an analysis for tax analysts that showed the numbers between 1966 and 2011. Now, you know, they talk about trickle down economics. Well, you know, if you consider that time period as all trickle down economics, which is not exactly right, but simplistically speaking, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, well, it turns out they were right. It did trickle down to us, all the tax cuts for the wealthy and all the breaks that they got, uh, because the average person's income. Uh, went up for you know the bottom 90% of us. Our income went up by $59 on average. Now that's adjusted for inflation. Okay, $59. Hey, what are you complaining about, man? Do you, you know, how many decades is that? And after all those decades, you got $59 extra in your pocket. Now, how did it go for the top 10%? In that same time period, they probably got a little more, right? Obviously, they're the top 10% they're going to get a little bit more increase. Their incomes. Grew by one hundred and sixteen thousand dollars, fifty-nine to one hundred and sixteen thousand. But we're not done yet. How about the top one percent? Their income grew by three hundred and sixty-six thousand six hundred and twenty-three dollars. Your income grew by fifty-nine bucks, adjusted for inflation. All those numbers are adjusted. Did it trickle down enough? Did it trickle down on us enough? Come on. Look, here's my favorite chart of all time because it shows you the highway robbery that's happened in all this time. Now the David K. Johnson's numbers went back to 1966, but you can see on this chart the real divergence starts around 1978-1980. The yellow line is productivity. That is sky high. American workers, great job. You're incredibly productive. Are you getting the rewards of that production? Hell no. Average hourly compensation, average average hourly va- wage both flatline. The difference between the yellow line and that blue and red line is the robbery. They took your productivity, gave you 59 bucks from 1966 to now and took home the 110,000, the 366,000, etc. Now look, I get it. The rich get richer. Everybody knows that, right? And we all know there's going to be an imbalance. The question is, how much of an imbalance? The question is, was it fair? Was it right? Did the government who was supposed to represent us look out for us? Or did they let a few people take all those productivity gains that you worked hard for and put it in their pocket? See, that's what the problem is. Now, to give you a sense of the issue here, If you say that $59 uh, boosted the economy is the, or to your personal family is the equivalent to one inch, the top 10% of Americans rose by 168 feet in comparison. See, this is income inequality that is record breaking. That's why Venezuela has much better economic equality than we do. At one of many examples why we're some of the worst in the developed world in terms of income inequality. But this doesn't help people, man. Overall, it winds up hurting the economy and eventually it's going to hurt the entire country. And by the way, 90% is close to the entire country to begin with. And we've all been hurt by the wrong economic principles and the wrong political factors that led to those economic Factors like tax cuts for the rich over and over and over again, and deregulation over and over again. And that's how we got to this imbalance. By the way, one last number for you in terms of an imbalance. My God, you know that the top six heirs to the Walmart fortune, their net worth is the equivalent in 2010 of 41.5% of Americans combined. Just six people equal 41.5% of the entire country in terms of wealth. Gee, I wonder if we have an income inequality problem in America. If you let people buy that you're politicians, this is what you get.
4: Jittery about the economy? No worries. The March 29th front page of USA Today announced, we're feeling rich again. And the news does sound good, at least the way reporter Paul Davison explained it. The stock market's record-setting rally has helped U.S. households recover all of the wealth they lost in the Great Recession, prompting many Americans to open their wallets and shrug off a recent payroll tax hike. But who is the we here? And is Davidson really referring to all U.S. households, as he seems to be? The piece tells us that the S&P stock market index broke a record, just like the Dow. Home prices are creeping up 9% from their low point. That doesn't sound so impressive. But you finally get a dose of reality in the second-to-last paragraph. That's where USA Today tells us that most of this wealth is in stock value, and only about 10% of households have significant stock holdings. So household wealth is rebounding, Mostly because of the stock market, which means little to nothing to the vast majority of us. But still, we're feeling rich, aren't we?
5: Many times, many times I have referenced President Obama's desire to cut Social Security to forge a grand bargain because my belief that in his administration they perceive this as part of a silo that needs to be filled to ensure a legacy. And I have used as an example The Clinton welfare reform, which, to the extent that it's ever referenced as part of his legacy in the media, it is always referenced as a positive. And people have asked me, will you talk about why it's so bad? Why that welfare reform turned out so bad? And as if on cue, <coughs> Jason DePaul <coughs> in the New York Times wrote a piece uh, two days ago. Welfare limits left poor adrift as recession hit. Now, the irony is, is that in all the times I hear about Clinton welfare reform, I don't know if President Clinton's name is being used in this one in a 15-page in a story. Well, I printed it out as 15 pages. But he does write, perhaps no law in the past generation has drawn more praise than the drive to end welfare as we know it. He quotes it, and it was repeated many times by Bill Clinton, which joined the late 90s economic boom to send caseloads plunging. However, this program built its reputation when times were good. He writes, Arizona is one of 16 states that have cut their welfare caseloads further since the start of the recession in 2008. Contemplate this. It just shows you how bad this welfare reform was. we have almost doubled the rate of unemployment. Maybe even more if you want to include uh, the uh, excessive numbers of people leaving the workforce in the past four or five years. Yet, 16 states have cut their welfare rolls. How is that possible? Even as it turned away the needy, Arizona spent most of its federal welfare dollars on other programs. It's because the federal government changed the way it offered it. The poor people who are dropped from cash assistance here, mostly single mothers, talk with surprising openness about the desperate, sometimes illegal way they make men- ends meet. They have sold food stamps, sold blood, skipped meals, shoplifted, doubled up with friends, scavenged trash bins for bottles and cans, returned to relationships with violent partners all with children in tow. The old program was aid to families with dependent children. It gave states unlimited matching funds and offered poor families extensive rights with few requirements and no time limits. The new program, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, created time limits and work rules cap federal spending and allow states to turn poor families away so you follow the dynamic that's different there states used to be encouraged to help poor people now they're being discouraged rules that allowed poor people who are desperate to sign up have now been tightened to make the requirements that much harder the amount of time they could spend on welfare was capped. Peter Elderman, law professor at Georgetown University who resigned from the Clinton administration to protest the law, said my take on it was states would push people off and not let them back on and that's just what they did. It's been even worse than I thought it would be. (coughs) When jobs were plentiful in 1996 in the early days of the program, A subset of families appear disconnected, left with neither welfare or work. Those numbers have surged since that time. One in four low-income single mothers is jobless and without cash aid. Roughly four uh, million women and children. One prominent supporter of the tough welfare law, Ron Haskins, a guy who helped write it for the Republicans, is worried that it may have incre- increased destitution among the most disadvantaged families. I'm sorry, this piece was written a year ago, in 2012. The biggest problem with welfare reform, and we ought to be paying attention to it, he said. This is back in 96. The issue is, can you create a strong program as we did without creating a big problem at the bottom? And We have what appears to be a big problem at the bottom. None of this program has worked in the way that it's supposed to. The recession began in 2007, uh, posed a new test to the claim that welfare reform works. Even with $5 billion in new federal funds, caseloads just rose 15% from the lowest level in two generations. Compared with the 90s, national welfare rolls are still down by 68%. We've kept people off welfare, but we have more poor people. More people who are even more desperately poor. More people who are having to go on food stamps to substitute in some way because that's where the federal government still gives the money. That's why we've seen surges in welfare and, and food stamps. Some states took new steps to keep the needy away, to shorten time limits, tightened eligibility rules, and reduced benefits so that they wouldn't have to spend more money The states get fixed federal grants for, um, for the, the, the poorest people. So any caseload growth comes at their own expense. Federal government pays the entire food stamp bill. So states encourage applications there and just push them off there. So this is an example of how uh, Clinton's welfare reform failed us. And in fact it's simply being used now as a bludgeon to say people are abusing the food stamps rolls. And yet it is part of Clinton's legacy that is hailed. That's why the Obama administration is seeking to cut social security. Because they know they will get praise for it regardless of its implications. Regardless of how much it devastates people's retirement because any reduction in social security you also got to add to the fact that you have reductions in the private elements of people's security uh, and so all we're going to see is social security constituting a greater amount of seniors income in their retirement in the future and that amount being less in real dollars
3: This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm John Kirk. On his radio program, Rush Limbaugh discussed the monthly jobs report released by the Labor Department. Here he is pushing a familiar conservative media narrative that some Americans are merely takers.
6: The labor force participation rate grew by over a half million people in one month. Those are jobs that have vanished. Every one of those people is eating and pretty much what they want to eat. And every one of them has a cell phone. And every one of them has no trouble getting around. And they all live somewhere. And so to them, you say, well, it's not working. Well, it is for me. I don't have a job, and I'm doing well. Now, where have we heard that before? I thought we had an obesity epidemic. What is this curb hunger in America business? You know what you do to curb hunger? You work. It's called a job. The time to rise has
2: been- I want to just, you know, basically lay out a rant here. 30 years of Reaganomics. What has it done? We have uh, 30 years is cleanly two, I mean, you know, a generation is 20, 20 years, more or less. So it, it, it you know, it cleanly co- covers at least one generation, half another generation. Really, it's bled into a third. You got the baby boomers, you got Generation X, you've got uh, the millennials. And the Republicans, you know, Reaganomics, I, you know, I talked about this a little earlier that, that, you know, in some cases these conservatives are doing this out of the best of intentions. They really genuinely think that if people are economically insecure, this was Alan Greenspan's phrase, then you have higher levels of social stability and, you know, they, they will behave themselves. Social stability is an important thing in the conservative world. But the fact is that in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, we had continuously growing incomes, and in the 40s and the 30s, continuously growing income in people's families. Continu- and, it, and it grew at about the same rate that productivity grew. So as companies were able to get more and more work out of their employees, they paid their employees more for that work. Pretty straightforward stuff, and the result of that was that by the '60s, you had a strong middle class in the United States, where with a high school diploma, you could get a, a decent job, you could work that job forty hours a week, and you could have a vacation for a week or two a year, and you could put your kids through school, and you could buy a house and buy a car every couple of years, and and even have, you know, health insurance and and a pension, a retirement benefits. People actually save for their retirement. And then began the Reagan bubble in the 1980s. You know, as we went out of the 70s into the 80s, we went out of the era of New Deal economics, New Deal economics and into the era era of Reaganomics. And we've been in the era of Reaganomics for 32 years. And what it ha- what has it produced? Well, first of all, CEOs' wages have exploded, which I guess you'd expect. I mean, you know, Reagan in his inaugural ball, he basically said, "This is it. You know, no more of this Jimmy Carter walking to the White House kind of stuff, and none of this Zachary Taylor. Let's invite the people in. It's like you got to pay big bucks, fancy clothes, expensive ball." So by 2008, CEO pay was skyrocketing. And workers' pay was flat. Federal minimum wage actually went down 9% inflation-adjusted in dollars. Production workers' pays went up 4.3% from 1990 to 2005. Uh, not much. You include the, the Bush crash, and it's actually gone down. Corporate profits, however, up over 100%. The S&P up over 140% and the pay for CEOs up over 300%. Average hourly earnings have declined. Before Reaganomics, the average hourly earnings $20 an hour. Now around $18 an hour. An average, and keep in mind this is an average, an average hourly earnings have essentially stayed the same when adjusted for inflation. So what has filled in that gap? Income growth has not gone up, but things have gotten more expensive. Life has gotten more complicated. We've, we've shifted a lot of expenses into people's lives that used to be paid not by them. For example, education. Thirty years ago, you could have a high school diploma and get a decent job and raise a family. Which means that your educational costs were zero. 100% of the cost of education was borne by the government. Go to a public school. Right? Now, you basically have to have a college degree to even qualify for entry level jobs in many places. And that four years of college is not paid for by the government. And increasingly, it's going to take a year or two of preschool, particularly if two people in the family are working. It takes a couple of years. So instead of 12 years of education, we need 16 years, 18 years of education in order to have that same guarantee of just being in the median, just having the the average income. And what has that done? Well, you know, now you have to have 16 years of education. It used to be that you could get by with just 12 years of education. 12 years of education, 100% paid for by the government. Now it takes 16 years. Or 18 years. And six of those years are not paid for by the government. So what happens? Parents get tapped out. And then when they're completely tapped out, the kids get, start getting tapped out. Student debt. You had credit cards being promoted you know first first people wanted a credit card debt to pay for their kids to go to college the the boomer generation or the kids themselves you a credit card debt if there was a home involved they they would mortgage the home and now all that's gone now it's student debt student loan debt before the the so-called Reagan revolution, we actually had positive savings. The average savings rate for Americans before the Reagan presidency was around 10%. Got as high as 11% in the 70s. Now it's negative. It's zero. It's below zero. So debt is strangling our economy. the cost of health care has gone up dramatically the cost of education has gone up dramatically and meanwhile last friday you know every now and then there's somebody in the senate and you think that person kind of demeans the senate itself by simply being there like you know how did this guy get in the senate senator ted cruz of texas should be Ted Cruz, parentheses, C for crazy. Or T for Tea Party. Anyway, the Tea Party senator from Texas. He said we need to completely privatize federal student loans. So you owe your money to the bank. and The bank can charge whatever they want. In other words, no more low interest rate loans for students. Somebody's going to make some serious money off student loans. Well, they, they not that they haven't been already. And this Republican plan is going to throw an entire generation of young people into this. So isn't it time that we started acting like the rest of the developed world? Isn't it time that we provided for, for free higher education here? And isn't it about time that we started saying... We have a trillion dollars worth of student loan debt right now. It's worse than credit. There's more student loan debt than there is credit card debt in the United States. This was not the case before Reaganomics. Student loan debt was negligible. Pretty much the only people who went into debt to go to college before the Reagan presidency were people who were getting graduate degrees, where they knew that they would have exceptionally high incomes. People becoming medical doctors and attorneys. But now it's everybody. Isn't a time for us to say it's time to declare a jubilee? Where it's time to wipe out this student debt, and to say from this point going forward, an education is a right, out a privilege, including a college I think so.
7: Inequality matters. You'll hear people say it doesn't, but they're usually so high up the ladder they can't even see those at the bottom. That's true across America. In California's Silicon Valley, Apple, Facebook, and Google, among others, have reinvented the gold rush. But down the road in San Jose, it's not so pretty a picture. Do the math. In an area where one fourth of the population earn an average of about nineteen thousand dollars a year, rent alone can average more than twenty thousand dollars a year and that difference adds up to homelessness we talked to associated press reporter martha mendoza who brought this story to our attention
8: i've been a journalist in this area for twenty five years and during that time it has gone from having a pretty robust middle class to being an area where you see this great divide of wealthy and poor and nowhere do you see that more than in the silicon valley where Twenty-five years ago, this was a place of orchards and um, farms and ranching and small businesses. And it has completely changed now so that you have incredibly wealthy people and incredibly poor people and a growing gap. Homelessness has increased dramatically. In the shadow of Google, in the shadow of Oracle, in the shadow of Apple Computer, you have people who are hungry.
7: Cindy Chavez of Working Partnerships USA.
8: People had
9: this belief that somehow that Silicon Valley was paved with gold. and I would even say my parents coming from New Mexico all those years ago when I was very small, I mean they came here looking for opportunity. They wanted to be in a place that it didn't matter what their ethnicity or culture was, it didn't matter what their class was, that they really could put their stake in the ground, buy a home, and, and grow a family. I think that's a dream that a lot of people come to Silicon Valley with, and one of the problems is it's not like that for everybody. We have really been a tale of two cities for, for really a long time.
7: Here is CEO of joint Ventures Silicon Valley, Russell Hancock. Our
2: economic expansion is pretty staggering. People have referred to it as the longest, most sustained, largest legal wealth creation in the history of the planet we have very high income, highest in, in the nation. We also have very low. We've got both. And what's actually happening right now is a hollowing out in the middle. Now, this is a national phenomenon, but it seems to be a particularly acute in Silicon Valley. We're still generating
4: on the high end of engineers and scientists and coders, but the support positions, manufacturing, you're not going to see that in Silicon Valley anymore.
7: Again, Martha Mendoza.
8: They would manufacture silicon chips there in the early days. Um, and I was just the other day looking for anybody making wafers anymore, in the. and um, there's not.
7: Teresa Frege. So
8: I used to work with the National Semiconductor. I worked in masking. I made that silicon chip. I'm the one who put the programs on that chip. I'm the one who inspected them. I've cleaned houses have taken care of uh, disabled people. I'm 54 years old. I've got nothing.
7: Martha Mendoza.
8: So what happened was in the Silicon Valley 15 years ago during the first boom, for every five jobs they were adding, they were building two units of housing. So that jacked up the housing prices to what fights for the most expensive housing in the country. Sometimes it's first place, sometimes it's second place. People who had Blue collar jobs were getting paid 10, 15, 20 bucks an hour. And when their jobs went away, they were largely unskilled and could take um, jobs that paid $8 an hour. That would be the minimum wage in San Jose for the past 15 years. As of last week, they raised it to $10 an hour. Now, on that type of wages, you can't rent an apartment. You can't buy food, and you can't handle the transportation expenses, which can be very high. And so you end up, in some cases, you find people living three or four families to an apartment, um, or people move into homeless shelters, or people leave the area.
1: This is my tent. This is where I live.
7: Daniel Garcia.
1: I got
10: my transportation, my bike. (laughs) have electricity that I run by car battery. I work at a restaurant at Google. They have... uh, I don't know, I guess like 16
1: or 18 full-blown restaurants you can go eat at when you work there for free. I never heard of that in my life. They started doing background checks and did a background check on me. I'm a convicted felon, so they couldn't keep me there anymore. Right now, I do
0: yard work with people, stuff like that. I find bikes and I fix them up and resell them.
1: Again,
7: Martha Mendoza.
8: In many communities, you see the homeless people. You see them living in the streets, you see them begging downtown or busking. In the Silicon Valley, this is a lot of freeway living, and the homeless people, they live along the creeks or in parks but where people aren't going to see them, so it's more of a hidden problem.
7: Once again, Cindy Chavez.
8: We had a family visit
9: us, that um, mother, father, and three children, and they are homeless, and they're homeless because the father is a gardener, He works three days a week. He makes $75 every day he works. The mother lost her job in manufacturing. It took one paycheck to move them from their apartment onto the street. And that's true for a lot of families in our community. At some point, and I, and I do worry about this, like I think, is it all of a sudden that the country splits in half? Are we
8: creating literally two Americas?
7: Once again, Martha Mendoza.
8: Silicon Valley has the brain power and has the risky personality to do some really innovative things when it comes to poverty. And I even think there's a will to do this, but I think that there is a lack of awareness and hopefully a growing awareness because I I do think that um, there's been brilliance out of that region that has changed the world, so wouldn't it be something if that area could also be the one that sparks the brilliance that that starts to solve this really major problem?
7: Let's hope so, because inequality in America is now at the greatest level in modern history and shows no signs of abating. And paradoxically, this week, it got worse. The stock market reached new levels, making the rich richer and the press
0: euphoric.
9: And the gavel goes down on a historic day on Wall Street.
0: Roaring stock markets. The S&P just hits another record intraday high. It dows above 14.8.
7: The Nasdaq rose about 60 points. No one stopped to point out that when the market goes up, it can mean companies have fired workers in order to increase investor profits. Sure enough, the latest figures show employment has barely risen and more rank-and-file Americans have gone missing from the job market altogether. The Commerce Department reports that personal income fell 3.6% in January. That's the sharpest one-month dive in 20 years. It sure seems like the roaring 20s all over again. People at the top living it up while those down below lose their livelihood. Which brings us to our nation's capital. Rich and alabaster symbols of representative government, yet shamelessly cynical in writing laws and bending rules to favor the 1%, and that includes the tax code. So on Monday, when you send in your tax returns, think about this. Corporate profits are at record highs, but have those companies invested that money in new jobs? No. Did they at least give their workers a bump in pay? Hardly. Surely they shelled out a little more in taxes to help refurbish the social structure, the highways, bridges, schools, libraries, and parks where they do business. Guess again. Corporations are sitting on $1.7 trillion of cash. Look at this report just published by PIRG, the Public Interest Research Group, on how average citizens and small businesses have to make up the $90 billion giant companies save by shifting profits to offshore tax havens. Among the 83 publicly traded corporations named Pfizer, which for the past five years reported no taxable income in the U.S., even as it made 40 percent of its sales here. Microsoft, which avoided $4.5 billion in taxes over three years by shifting its income to Puerto Rico. Citigroup, which maintains 20 subsidiaries in tax havens and has over $42.5 billion sitting offshore. Taxes collected here at home, zero. So it shouldn't surprise us to learn that the United States collects less in taxes as a share of its economy than all but two other industrialized countries. Only Chile and Mexico collect less. Chile and Mexico. Right now, a powerful group of CEOs, multimillionaires, and billionaires are calling on Congress to fix the debt and their enablers in both parties are glad to oblige. Okay, but why not fix the debt by raising more taxes from those who can afford to pay? Close the loopholes, shut down the tax havens, cancel the Mitt Romney clause Congress enacted allowing big winners to pay a tax rate far less than their chauffeurs, nannies, and gardeners. Instead, as we speak, our political class in Washington is attempting to fix the debt by sequestration. That's Washington doublespeak for bleeding services for veterans and the elderly, the sick and poor, for kids in Head Start. Marching in lockstep beneath a banner that now stands for Guardians of Privilege, GOP, Republicans refuse to raise revenues, while Democrats have a president whose new budget contains gimmicks that could lead to cuts in Social Security. Social Security, the one universal safety net, and a modest one at that, and yet the main source of purchasing power for millions of aging Americans. This from a Democrat, the heir of Franklin Delano Roosevelt who pulled us to our feet when the Great Depression had America on its knees. This Social Security
3: measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation through old-age pensions, and through increased services for the protection of children and the prevention of ill-health.
7: But those were the days when our political system rallied to the defense of everyday Americans. Now, a petty, narcissistic, pridefully ignorant politics has come to dominate and paralyze our government, while millions of people keep falling through the gaping hole that has turned us into the United States of inequality. Warren Buffett, the savviest capitalist of them all, may have written this era's epitaph. If there was a class war, my class won.
11: Like J. Doug in Chicagoland. You know, I've often wondered what the world would be like today if Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan had never come into power. How much better would it be? How much worse would it be? I often wondered, you know, what if Ronald Reagan didn't fire the air traffic controllers? And what if he embraced the idea of killing the AIDS epidemic before it started? And what if Margaret Thatcher embraced Nelson Mandela's ideas instead of calling him a terrorist and so forth. And what if she was to uh, enrich those children instead of taking their milk away? How much different would this world be today? You know, I think about Margaret Thatcher going into the Falkland Islands for the same reason that George Bush went into Iraq. Ego, nobody was gonna tell them that they, they couldn't do it. And how would it be different if Tony Blair would have said no to George Bush to go into Iraq? How is that different? Let's come into present day. What if Mitch McConnell was no longer minority leader? How much better would the Senate be? What if Dick Durbin was majority leader instead of Harry Reid, the man without a spine? What if Eric Cantor and John Boehner were history out of the House of Representatives? What if? You know, I have a sneaking suspicion that President Obama is going to approve the Keystone Pipeline. You know, you and I both know that if he does that, it's game over for the economy. But there's something in the back of my mind that tells me, you know, I think he might approve it. You know, are we going to be sitting around in 30 years talking about the decisions that Barack Obama made, like we're talking about Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan? The decisions we make today have consequences 30 years down the road. You know, at this point, I'm going to compliment your artwork. The Iron Lady, rest in peace. You know, I think it's fitting, I think it fits her. And I think that uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan did more than any other two people to uh, set the course of events for England and the United States for the past 30 years. Thanks a lot, Jay. I appreciate what you do. Thanks. Hey
12: Jay, it's Ty from Arizona again. I was calling to respond to Chris from Colorado. Hey Jay, what's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs. Basically when I said Christians do try to stop people from being gay out of love, he responded by saying,
11: I think it's funny that Christians forget that Christ was a huge proponent of acceptance. They they always want to throw in, I'm a Christian, I'm doing this out of love, when they completely forget about the accepting part.
12: I want to first reiterate by saying that I do not consider myself a Christian anymore, so if, Chris, you do have that impression of me, I apologize. I'm just one to play devil's advocate a lot. Secondly, I think that a lot of Christians in the country, they are accepting of people. It's the, like Jay, played clips in the most recent show, basically getting the point across that it's that small minority of Christians, teabaggers and things like that, that tend to talk a lot louder than the majority. I do want to say that... And I, I don't think that when they say, this is out of love, so I'm going to vote against you having rights, the same rights as I do, I don't think that a good Christian would do that. I think that a good Christian would vote for everybody to be able to do whatever they want. And then on, on a personal level, like you, like you said, Chris, like Christ would, moving forward with these people, try to get them to better themselves. Again, I hate having to say this because I feel like when I'm saying better themselves I'm on the side of the crazy guy who is super homophobic I do not feel that way I hate that people are judgmental to people like that um, but I also hate the judgment going from the other side of the pond against the Christians saying well you're just bigoted well that's, I don't think that's what it is I think that they are doing it out of concern they are doing it out of love but I think that a good Christian wouldn't vote against Anybody being able to enjoy the same rights and happiness as we do. So thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jay. You guys have a good one.
6: Hello, Jay. This is Jay from New York. Actually, calling on a, not calling from my car, so the audio should be better. Uh, I listen to The Best of Left a lot, and as a result, I have some dreams and unconscious insights that are interesting. Recently, I watched a, a strong feeling bubble into my mind, like when I. I, and I like it when unsought feelings just find their way up through the maze. I trust them more than the feelings you uh, come up with to rationalize your point of view. I listen to conservatives as they rant and rave about homosexuality and gay rights and gay marriage and climate change and foreigners and immigrations and atheists and freedom of religion. And I sense one basic deep element in all of it, and that is fear. They fear change they don't understand. They fear seeing gays walking around, kissing each other on the streets with immunity. They fear the thought of the oceans rising 100 feet. They fear a USA full of people different than good old white folks. They fear the thought of godlessness, whatever that might mean. And that fear is a simple hardwired response to anything that might seem different and possibly dangerous to them. That innate response to anything that could endanger their existence or cause discomfort or pain. So they find rationale to explain their politics. They use God, the Bible, freedom, the Constitution, Americanism, whatever, to oppose the hidden dangers that they so fear. And conservatives express disdain and and hatred for the educated. This makes sense because the educated often tend to have a little less fear of the unknown. The educated may have worked through some of the primal fears that seem that they don't often apply in the modern world. Even with the bombings in Boston, which I think were aimed at Boston's high level of education and progressive thinking. The educated had studied some of the unknowns and made them knowns. They had experienced some unknowns and survived. They left their provincial little towns and experienced a bit of the unknown world and broadened their views on the unknown and the dangerous. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there seems to be very few hardcore conservative military leaders. These guys have been around, and they as a result of their education and being around, they're not so... Uh, hardcore conservatives, the real conservatives are politicians, Rumsfeld, Cheney and Bush, they got their way but there was a lot of power hunger going on there, they are the real three stooges but it's that deep inner fear that glowing core of fear like kryptonite that disables many people who have not had the opportunity to understand that what they fear may not hurt them at all it could really help them, that's just some ideas obviously I wrote down but they're important and the fear thing is, uh, is what's behind it all, that little core of fear. I'll show Jay's been doing.
13: Hey Jay, this is Mike from Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm listening to your uh, podcast, which by the way you do a great job at and I always appreciate it, especially the high production value. But I'm listening to the, the show right now on marriage equality. And there's so many of the clips that you played that showed so much anger at Rob Portman for finally coming around because his son happened to be gay. And, you know, most of the anger stems around the fact that what he couldn't see it before. And the thing is, you know, if you look at the polls in America, especially over time, the Americans have evolved over a, a period of, of many years now towards favoring marriage equality. And so when, and I guess this really isn't a, a comment towards you, necessarily, as so much clips that you're playing, there so, seems to be so much anger on the left which I count myself a part of, over people that you know weren't born supporting marriage equality. You know, it's an issue that most of us have evolved on. I myself, here in Kentucky, we had a, a constitutional amendment that I, uh, you know, I, I, I regret that I did vote for to ban gay marriage. I absolutely regret that now. I fully support marriage equality, but like many people, you know, my my view has evolved over time, and I think when we show hostility towards people coming to this new idea that marriage equality is a good thing, it's something worth fighting for, it's something worth voting for, it's something worth marching for, when we see, see congressmen or people in power that can make a difference and we show hostility towards them, I think it makes people less inclined to come out and, and, and open their minds up to the idea that you know all humans, just by the mere fact of being human, should be treated equally. You know, at one time, most of us, and I say most of us as Americans, did not support marriage equality. So that hostility, you know, right now it's targeted really badly towards Rob Portman. Why don't we celebrate the fact that he did evolve? And who cares why he evolved? Who cares if he his son or if he had a, a deep spiritual enlightenment or he just took a really long bubble bath and, and came to this conclusion? Why can't we just accept the fact that, hey, we've got another advocate on the side? And, uh, you know, I, I have no personal hostility towards Rob Portman. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a straight man, but... I, and, and maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's coming from that perspective that I'm a straight man, so this doesn't really impact my rights so much as it impacts the rights of other people. Uh, that makes me less hostile to the idea, and maybe it has to do with my personal journey. But can't we just accept the fact that he's on our side now? And that's a great thing. We should celebrate that. Anyway, thank you very much, enjoy the show.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today, instead of doing my own comments, I want to play just a a bit of a clip uh, that is actually going to respond to the last voicemail we heard about, you know, maybe we should be more accepting of people or politicians who come over to the side of acceptance and tolerance of the LGBT community. And so this is a clip from The Young Turks. It would have gone perfectly in either the recent uh, gay rights episode or the empathy deficit episode. But it, it was cut for time. It, a lot of the clip was sort of redundant to other uh, clips that were used. Uh, but there's one segment that, that's mostly uh, Ben Mankwitz speaking. He's uh, one of the original co-hosts of The Young Turks. He, he's not on every episode. Uh, but he's the first person you'll hear speaking, and he he is uh, over you know the last you know nearly a decade that I've been listening to progressive talk radio. I think Ben might be my favorite commentator a- and if if I had to say in one sentence why that is um besides him being funny, I think that he's the least sure of himself, (laughs) you know, he definitely has opinions, but he's, he's the most willing to sort of second guess himself and, you know, be open to new information. And he wants to really make sure he understands where other people are coming from and, and sort of always recognize, like, I might not know what I'm talking about. So listen to this clip. And uh, I think this sort of sums up People's feelings about frustration versus happiness about you know politicians making the change, as well as the frustration surrounding Portman in particular and why people were
10: frustrated at him. It was there are of course two minds on this. One is you gotta when when you're fighting for a civil right, when people, especially people in power, come to your side, it is a good day. Yes. And that's all there is to it, and it's good that he got here and good for Rob Portman for getting here. Did this. Classless bozo, who we're <laughs> welcoming to our side. Um, um, not get before that there were families with sons who were gay. I hated this in many ways because of just what we've been talking about. I just and you're right. It's the empathy gene. Is that you really at some point you have to recognize that of course, who do you think these gay people are? They're all somebody's son. So it's incredible. I was. I think I was more frustrated than pleased, and then a little angry at myself for being more frustrated than pleased. Like I should be, you know. Uh, I, I should be welcoming and open, and I and I am. But then I watched the interview, which we just played a clip of, and just like I mean, he's blowing that. Like it's so manicured and careful and planned and studious and thoughtful and not a, then not and not a moment of like, boy, I tell you, it happens to you and you get hit in the face with the fact that you were wrong.
3: No, Ben, you nailed yeah. it. That's exactly what I was trying to put my finger on. He didn't look human. No, he no, looked no. like a politician. No. Like, oh, I talked to my pastor and I talked to Dick Cheney. And I thought, and, like, give me a moment of, like, hey, you know what? I thought, man, you knucklehead. You know, this goes through. This happens to other families too, and I felt bad about what I'd been saying before. Totally, because they went through it. what I went through. And maybe like, that you would tell other Republicans, you know, maybe you should think about this because, look, I should have had this position before. It was wrong of me not to. You may not have. A gay son you shouldn't need a gay son to make the same change but he's trying to say look I've changed on this but I'm the same person same values no other Republicans need to change like if he's coming over to our side it's the most begrudging come to our side anybody has ever had on yeah, that right, issue. because
0: he just want to get primaried. So in brief conclusion I think that both frustration and happiness are sort of the yin and yang of of the reaction to people like Portman coming over to the side of tolerance on LGBT issues and it is just inevitable because it's not even necessarily anger directed at portman it's it's anger directed at what he represents his inability to empathize until it happens to him and then even after that waiting a couple of years to finally come around to what is seemingly the obvious conclusion for so many people these days and now now that we're to the point where more than 50 percent of the population has come to the side of uh, you know recognizing that same-sex marriage should be available that, you know, everyone else really feels like stragglers. And so, you know, as the caller pointed out about himself, uh, you know, as a straight guy, referring to this, you know, he sort of empathized, you know, a bit more than uh, than some others would with Portman's position and thought, well, like, hey, you know, I, I made this transition. And so, you know, he did too. Maybe don't give too much shit to these guys. You know, but for those who have actually been discriminated against and emotionally and, you know, mentally tortured their whole lives based on an immutable fact about themselves and, you know, their sexuality and how the, the, the sort of mental anguish that causes for people, you know, I think, I think Portman and people like him uh, can take it if, if they have to endure a little bit of shaming for having come to the party so late. So that's it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show, there are lots of ways to do it, including iTunes, the standard RSS feed, of course, and also there's a variety of great apps for smartphones, including Stitcher and even a Best of the Left app made specifically for the show for iPhone and Android. Uh, Thanks also, and especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the program between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music.
4: What you want to meet A dying man in a living room Who shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out any open door This is not my life It's just a fun